Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome to another edition of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. And of course, I am Adam Lowther. And today we have Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and Sam Stanton, who are also with the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. And we are going to be your round table for today. Now, last week we had, I had written up a series of questions to ask everybody that I thought were sort of some pressing and prescient issues that we wanted to discuss. And unfortunately, we were not able to get through all of those questions. So we decided to come back this week and ask those questions. But then also, we've had some news happen that I wanted to ask you guys about uh, because it's, you know, within the, you know, the nuclear enterprise is always moving and international politics are not a steady state. So with that, I want to throw this first question sort of out to everybody, Sam, Jim, Curtis, you know, it's really up to all of you. And I I would imagine you'll all kind of come from it from a different take because of your different backgrounds. But so here's the question, what should drive the size and capabilities in the United States' nuclear arsenal. You want to go first? Uh, I, I hear you thinking, Curtis. You're thinking quite loudly, by the way. Uh, uh, you know, I, I hear your brain waves are moving. Uh, so uh, you want to go ahead and take take that first? All right. Well, thanks, thanks Adam. And, and Sam, thanks for joining us again this week and uh, keeping us honest. Um, Jim, always good to see you. Um, hey, I, I want to uh, uh, address that really great question, Adam, in, in this way. And I, maybe it's a little bit of a carryover from last week. Um, and, and I think there's the question is, isn't just what drives, but maybe what should drive. So these are because because, uh, you know, a little uh, cheating into my answer is that what we should do is not necessarily what we are actually doing. But uh, I think of deterrence uh, and deterrence, the strategy to achieve deterrence in this way. When you look at grand strategy, for example, we think about there's two different kinds of grand strategy, right? There's the grand strategy that, uh, that informs resourcing, the things that you need to have to create the world that you want, a world of peace and prosperity, for example. And then there is the kind of grand strategy that is what we would call resource-informed grand strategy, which is constrained by the limits of your purse and the ideas that go with it. And that often is what drives the deterrence uh, mechanism that we have today. We are constrained by what we have, which is Cold War legacy uh, systems, and we are struggling to do a massive modernization of which we are 10 years into a 25 year process. And so we have a long way to go. And a lot is happening from when we started 10 years ago to where we're gonna be 15 years from now. And one of those things is 
our adversaries are willing to go to war. They're challenging us uh, around the globe uh, and they are arming up their nuclear arsenals. They are modernizing and increasing numbers and possibly forming an alliance against us. However you want to define that. And these create challenges for us in what should our, our, um, our force posture and numbers look like. And so the, the question is what, if your question is what should drive um, our, nuclear, um, our, our nuclear deterrent size, it really should be not necessarily what the, the problems that we're dealing with today. It should be getting geared to look at the problems that we're going to be dealing with tomorrow. Okay. All right. Jim, what do you say? Yeah, yeah, Adam. First first of all, if you listen to last week's podcast, I gave a number. And uh, this week I'm going to give a different number because I'm an engineer and I like giving numbers. <laughs> so my number is somewhere between zero and a million. And so somewhere in between there is an answer. And I, although that sounds like a sort of a silly answer, but the reality is it depends on how we apply the strategy. One could argue that one nuclear weapon, and of course, this is the silliness of making this argument, one nuclear weapon it would, would destroy the entire world and be able to do everything we'd want to do is going to make everyone simply run and hide from us because that would be the one nuclear weapon that would destroy it all. and We'd all be afraid of it. That's, of course, silliness. This idea of building a nuclear weapon to destroy the world would do that. But what we need, so, so now you now now I've moved it from zero to a million to one to a million. So I've already reduced this this set by one. Okay, the second piece of this, though, it's probably more important, is how do we how do we employ, and we are employing them every day, our nuclear weapons in such a way that give us the effect that we want, and that is not a static answer. And I wished we'd get beyond this. It's not a number for today. It's an ab ability to adjust to our adversaries as they change. And that, I think, is the piece of the strategy that's missing every time we talk about how many we're going to do. So my number, one in a million, one to a million is a good number to fit in there. Let you strategists uh, work with that, along with Curtis McGiffin's well-couched answer to start that argument. Okay, how about you, Sam? Um, what should drive the size and capability? I, I tend to agree with Jim. I, it's not going to ever be a static number. What is, what is your need? What is the purpose of those particular weapons? And where do they fit into not just the, the grand strategy, but into the, uh, the tactical picture of operational pieces of the puzzle putting together to cause that security for ourselves that is the purpose of grand strategy. And so when Curtis says that we have two different ways of looking at this, you know, the one, what what do we have? The other, what can we have because of cost and resource sink? Um, yeah, I mean, when you're making that grand strategy and deciding 
what do we need to do what and what can we do to cause security for ourselves because that's really i mean when we think about that old barry pose and definition of grand strategy those things that we're doing to cause security for ourselves I, Adam, I would like to sort of revise my answer a little bit. Thank you, Sam. Because one of the things that I said was a number between one and a million. But I, I want to uh, suggest also, since we bring in the cost, if you can afford three, and three is as big a number as you can make, but you need more, then at least three is the lower end of your number. You know, there's there. So now we begin to, as you can see, now I'm forming a strategy that begins to couch this in, in other numbers. And I think that's a piece of this. Yeah, uh, I agree. Go ahead, Curtis. What were you going to add? Let me follow up on that because uh, these are great answers. Um, but I think we have to also remember that deterrence occurs between the ears of the adversary. We don't get to decide the number. They get to decide what scares them. And so we have to figure out what is it that will scare them into maintaining a status quo, a peaceful status quo. And so uh, and, and to get to Jim's answer, that answer is somewhere between one and a million, right? But uh, if, you, if you do too much, uh, then you create fear uh, in the sense that now they feel like they, they, you know, that they have to react and then that creates this, this arms racing paradigm. But if you if you don't scare enough, uh, then they think that they can that, that they'll challenge you and, and and upset the status quo, and that usually leads to conflict. And that's why deterrence ain't easy. And that's why we have to have learned professionals who are thinking about this problem set constantly. It's iterative. It's dynamic. It's not a set and let it go. And just because we think that I don't know a thousand weapons would deter America. It doesn't necessarily mean a thousand weapons will deter China or Russia. Maybe that number is bigger. Uh, and so we have to be aware of that. And the challenge there is, is that if you, if you use that uh, resource-informed methodology, then you constrain yourself to where you maybe don't do enough, and then you don't create the very effect you're trying to get at. So you have to look at that pecking order of spending, right? And national security and sovereignty should be at the top. Uh, Terry Dival talks about, you know, the four purposes, uh, the four national interests of, of every country, right? And that's, uh, you know, sovereignty and, you know, protection, uh, economic prosperity, protection of your values at home, and then values preserve, uh, projection overseas. We tend to spend a lot on that last one. And uh, and maybe not enough um, on the uh, on the first one. So I'll give you a, a bit. I think it's a bit more concrete in how to decide. So first of all, let let me challenge you. I will I will submit that that the United States has never, nor will it ever, be resource constrained in the size of its nuclear arsenal. So the nuclear arsenal is you know less than one tenth of 1% of GDP. It's, you know, mm -hmm. less than a, you know, the, the federal budgets about six and a half trillion dollars. We're going to spend 50 billion perhaps on nuclear weapons. So less than a 10th of a percent. Uh, now we're going to, let's say we spend 50 billion. We're going to 
in the same year we spend fifty billion on nuclear weapons, we're going to lose seventy to ninety billion dollars in Medicare and Medicaid to waste, fraud, and abuse. Now, I have never heard anybody stand up and say we simply cannot afford to lose seventy to ninety billion dollars a year in Medicare and Medicaid. I bet nobody even knows we lose seventy to ninety billion dollars a year in Medicaid, except for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So this is not about affordability. That is a total red herring. We could spend whatever we wanted. We can. So I'm gonna, I'll get back to you. So let me make my argument. We're all putting our hands up. <laughs> so the the second point I want to make is we got to either decide whether are we are we going to have a counter force or counter value. Counter value is a lot less. Counter force is more. And then I would submit you have to have parity with your adversaries because humans think in terms of symmetry. It's basic human psychology that we like symmetry. And if you follow prospect theory, one of the things that prospect theory says is that people avoid risk. They're risk, uh, they're risk avoiders until you force a risk, until you force a loss on them. And then they become risk acceptant. So parity helps you to feel the, the risk without feeling the loss, without feeling like you're guaranteed a loss. And so I think, Human basic human psychology and good economics says that there's no there's no you know economic constraints and you have parity with your adversaries because if you don't have parity you can create the perception of gaps as we have right now in non-strategic nuclear weapons and to me that's what is dangerous and I I can't remember who it was that said uh, but. An arms race is a lot cheaper than a great power war. Mm -hmm. So I will always gladly engage in an arms race. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, well, I just want to make a very point, a very <laughs> poignant point here. And that is you're still constrained. Your constraint may not be economics. Sure. Now, economics can be a constraint. Go to that million weapons or whatever. I mean, you know, jokingly aside, but there, there is a constraint economically. It is not the constraint. The constraint we have is in meeting the mission of deterring the adversary. And so that I, I always go back to that. That's really the important part. It's not the number. It's not the, you know, et cetera. Now the number plays into it, but it is what is, uh, what is the effect of building those weapons, having those weapons, maintaining those weapons, having them at the ready of those weapons, all those things are what drive our adversary's view. Even And, and I'm go back to that first step because I got beat up by a couple of you last week. Okay, <laughs> Maintenance of those weapons shows our adversaries we are serious. Yep. All yeah. right. Curtis, did you if have something? Pile on. Yeah, I want to just pile on there. Your very excellent point. Adam and, and Jim, and that is, there was a great article uh, that was put out and I'm going to butcher this guy's, this, this author's name. And I feel just so bad about this, but Adam um, and Andrew Juski uh, wrote for Forbes magazine back in 2019. And he wrote an article that said that um, between 2004 and 2019, 
the 20 largest federal agencies admitted to paying out $1.2 trillion in improper payments. Okay. And these are, you know, improper grants and loans, the Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security fraud, earned income tax credit, you know, errors, um, you name it. And this is pre-COVID, by the way. Um, and that the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, says that to recapture, that the recapture audits don't make financial sense, that they argue it costs too much to claw back those improper payments. So over the course of um, 15 years, roughly, uh, $1.2 million, trillion dollars wasted. That is about the correct number of the cost of modernization for the nuclear enterprise writ large as we understand it today, $1.2 trillion over the next 15 years. So, so we throw that away as a government entity essentially all the time. And, and um, uh, you know, to, to quote Jim Mattis to say that we can't afford our own security, you know, is, is essentially, you know, folly. And so um, we, have to, uh, we have to understand that. This is pennies on the dollar and the amount of safety and security that we get out of this nuclear deterrent is uh, if you're just going to dollar cost average it, uh, is is tremendous uh, in that regard. Uh, some estimates uh, back in 26 using 2016 dollars, World War II would have cost four trillion dollars to fight if we did it you know, roughly today. Um, it would cost one and a half trillion dollars to rebuild New York City if it were destroyed in a war or or bombed or whatever the case may be. These are big numbers in comparison to what it costs to maintain, modernize, et cetera, uh, the nuclear deterrent, which is designed to prevent peace, not fight wars. Sam? I'm sorry, present peace, not prevent, present. I don't say that I can add anything really new to what they're saying and what y'all have argued because it's good stuff. I mean, what is the constraint? The constraint is whatever we put on ourselves, right? And I think that you're right. It's not a dollar constraint. Is we're talking pennies on the dollar per se of defense to provide the nuclear deterrent. So what is constraining us? Politics. Because it is there. There is there are constraints, right? Sure. We know yeah. that there's always an uphill battle if you want a new type of system, a new delivery vehicle, a new warhead, any of these things that you want to put into the mix, it's an uphill fight. You know, if most of the American public, if a good number of people in even the realm that I work in, the academic realm, suddenly realize that, oh, by the way, we really are right in the middle of a nuclear modernization program, as Curtis talked about this 25-year program, and we still got 15 years to go, there'd be a lot more of them screaming and hollering that we should be shutting it down. Mm-hmm. So what's so the constraint? So our constraints, I think, are largely political. Um, and whether you agree or, or not, I would throw that out there and then ask Jim, Jim, are any of our constraints technical? Do we have engineering or technical constraints? Yeah, Curtis. Uh, yeah, so I'll get to that. But I do want to focus back just one more step again on this economic issue. And thanks, Curtis, for bringing up these comparisons. But we've already made the we, I think we've already made the point that the issue is not economic at this point. So the comparisons, you know, although they're good to inform people and that is why the comparisons are important. 
It is the American public's will and understanding. And this is why I think we as an organization, I'm going to plug NIDS because we are there to do that. Inform the public of what this money is buying us in terms of security and peace and prosperity that doesn't come from funding in other ways. Now, to the technological issues. Yes, there are constraints. And I'm going to put on my best Ronald Reagan here. I know everyone's <laughs> going to perk up. There you go again. All right. Because there's your, peace, there's your peace dividend now paying off as we attempt and we are going to do it. So I say attempt in a, in a strange way. But as we begin the process of modernization, we are basically now getting that peace dividend paying off because of all the neglect that we have provided in the past instead of applying it early and steady for many, many years. The technological issues are, unfortunately, time. Time to spin up the workforce, time to spin up the infrastructure, time to spin up the capability. But we as a country started out this nuclear phase of our world on a three-year bit to beat everybody to nuclear, and we did it. And it ended a war. If we could do it then, we can do it now. It's just a matter of what you said earlier. It's that will. Well, let me ask the sort of a follow. It was one of my five questions for today. And I'll, I'll ask, since Jim, you're on a roll here. Uh, there's a new in new data out, new estimates that, you know, we're going to build roughly 50 plutonium pits a year at Savannah River and about 30 at Los Alamos, uh, so about 80 a year. And the estimates for the cost to get this up and running and sustain this is $40 billion, So, which is quite a bit of money. And they've, you know, we've been investing because I went into the new facility at Los Alamos five years ago. Um, and, and so, you know, what is driving, and, and this is something that most people you know, don't understand. And so perhaps you can offer some clarification. What drives the cost of, you know, plutonium pit manufacturing, for example? Well, you're just getting me all excited here today, Adam. <laughs> um, yeah, so so look, let's, uh, let's first start thinking about this plutonium production. Okay, if you've listened to Nuclear Knowledge provided by NIDS, I just gave a talk. <laughs> about our conventional fuel versus nuclear fuel. It was excellent. This is not, yeah, excellent, by the way. Thank you. I have at least one follower. So <laughs> follow me. So anyway, the, uh, the, the process of making plutonium is extremely technological. It's extremely difficult. It has many, many hazards, chemical and nuclear associated with it and requires a substantial amount of infrastructure to do so. It's why the nuclear fuels are so difficult, or a nuclear program is so difficult to hide from the world public when anyone wants to do this. So we as a country, in order to redevelop the capability to provide plutonium manufacturing, requires us to go back and build the infrastructure build the safety protocols, and they are different than they were before. And I'm not going to say safety is not, you know, oh, you get the safety out of the way. I think it's important. I think safety is an important part of our deterrent strategy. If we have an accident and people see we're careless and don't know what we're doing, that tells, this, uh, that tells our adversaries we don't understand what we're doing. 
we must approach it cautiously, approach it reasonably, and then begin to meet the mission. So the cost goes up when you have to redevelop the infrastructure, redevelop the safety protocols, redevelop the materials, redevelop the workforce, and then get started in building. Those are all technological issues. Now, there are some things we can do because we know more today than we did in, what was it, 1971, I think, or 19, I can't remember. It's been a long time since we've made pits. Um, and uh, because of those, uh, because of the, uh, when we made our last pits, uh, because we know so much more. Manufacturing techniques have changed, et cetera, but you still have to build those skills. So that's my long answer to your nice question. Well, now, so then my next question, you know, is, is one for Curtis and Sam, and that is, you know, we've had this debate over the, you know, the course of the previous episodes of Nuclear View of schools of thought. Now, we've never really sort of laid out nicely for the listeners what are the main schools of thought, but that's my question to you now is what are the schools of thought when it comes to nuclear deterrence and, and nuclear weapons and, and, you know, what are the differences between them? How do you bend the different schools? Okay. So that's for you. Well, go ahead, Sam. I guess we could go all the way back to what, 1962 when uh, Robert Gilpin published the work with the research he did on the view of American scientists of nuclear weapons and nuclear policy. Mm -hmm. and uh, he said you through that they came up with basically their three schools of thought um, that were the uh, control finite containment and infinite containment as schools of thought for nuclear policy right uh, control the United States developed this. We should show everybody what it is, what it can do, which we had already done at the end of World War II, and keep anybody else from getting it, but not go through with producing more and making more of the weapons ourselves, but having shown that we have the capability of making the weapon and making more if the need arose to use them. The finite control said we should make a small limited arsenal and some others should and probably will also make small limited arsenals but we keep it amongst our small group of states that would have those capabilities and infinite containment said let everybody that wants to develop this technology and develop these weapons all develop it and, you know, because you can't control the universe. You can't keep people from being engaged in arms races. You can't keep states from seeking power. And you certainly can't keep any state from seeking its own defense. And so the schools of thought as they broke it down where, you know, keep it only to ourselves, but don't develop it develop it small scale for ourselves and others or let everybody have it and do what they want to with it yeah with nuclear power and nuclear weapons 
So that's that's one you, one take. Go ahead, go ahead, Sam. Then you can come on. Then you can fast forward to more recently breaking this down. Right? Uh, what's the guy's name? I'm going brain dead here for a second. Uh, the CSIS report in 2018. Uh, Arm Brewster wrote it. I mm-hmm. believe was his last name. Uh, and he said, you know. As far as schools of thought for nuclear weapons and and the availability of them and so forth, that there were five schools of thought, right? That you could have the balanced approach, the minimal deterrent, the um, abolition, or a flexible deterrence, or um, what was the last one? Nuclear superiority. You know, you have your choices there between those five different schools of thought. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty thorough one. I think, Curtis, you were going to sort of build on on what Sam was saying. Well, I, I would just so uh, first of all, those two references that Sam made are 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 fantastic. I got to go look at those. Those are interesting. I want to, I want to review those again. It's been a while since I've looked at them. Um, I, you know, we, we tend to want to fall back on the classic Schelling con models, Thomas Schelling's idea of mutual vulnerability, the threat that leaves something to chance, uh, which we basically built a mutual assured destruction uh, philosophy or strategy around. And then you had the Herman Kahn idea uh, you know, of, 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 of um, deterrence and specifically extended deterrence only works if we have the ability to protect our own cities, not leave them vulnerable, uh, and therefore have a, a, a wider spectrum. These, these two schools of thought, which I have condensed terribly, uh, <laughs> are, are more or less uh, still drived even today. And uh, back in 2020, Keith Payne wrote a great book, Shadows, uh, Deterrence, Shadows on the Wall, where he breaks it out into idealism and realism. And he says, basically, the idealists are basically about disarmament. And then the realists look at deterrence in two different ways. They, they have the, those who think of deterrence as being easy and those who think of deterrence as being difficult. And it sounds very simple uh, in this idea. But then when you that easy and difficult deterrence models... Uh, 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 fall in line, if you will, with Schelling and Kahn, respectively, uh, minimalists and maximalists, um, and and these sorts of things. And um, and so as we as we look at this today, we we see this minimalist um, uh, idea beginning to uh, uh, still it still takes hold, and we are have these arguments about whether or not we need Slickum or B eighty three. Uh, or these sorts of things. These are the minimalists or the folks who think that deterrence is easy, that all I need are big, big weapons, uh, just enough of them for a secure second strike. By the way, how do you define secure second strike? Guaranteed. What's guaranteed out there? Um, and, and then the hard, the difficult deterrence people who say, no, the deterrence is in fact difficult. We need to deter through the spectrum of conflict. We need to have tactical nuclear weapons or uh, or other mech- mechanisms and how they might align with conventional capabilities or cyber capabilities and these sorts of things. And, uh, and, and, and um, uh, damage limitation, right, and this desire for missile defense. 
What's interesting, I think, in this day and age is there's a there's a schism in the minimalists because the minimalists are also the same ones who argue that we need more missile defense. And that is more of a difficult deterrence model of thinking. Uh, and the idea is, is that minimalists, all right, this is Kurt McGiffin's opinion, uh, minimalists are abolitionists who know they can't get there. <laughs> so what they really want to do is get rid of nukes. But if, since they don't think they can really get rid of them, they, they're going to try to make them as few as possible, make them as most difficult to use, uh, uh, if you will. And I say use as in they're used every day for deterrence and, uh, and, 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 and create those constraints uh, through policy and fiscal limitations. And so that's uh, what I, I think the challenge that we're seeing today when you go from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, you see a change, a sea change from a difficult deterrence thought model going back to an easy deterrence thought model in that we don't need all these other things. Yes, we need to modernize. Yes, we need to essentially recapitalize what we already have in a one for one swap, except by the way, we're doing two fewer submarines. Um, and but but we're not going to do anything new. And and, uh, and 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 these sorts of things. In fact, we're going to get rid of at least one old thing uh, in the B-83. And so these are the challenges that we're still dealing with. And we're going to continue to have these arguments as long as there are uh, folks out there who believe that nuclear weapons um, are not the things that will ensure our peace. And those are the challenges. That's why we must communicate to go to build on Jim's position. Communication is key. Understanding and arguing against the 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 argue, the ideas and the the misstatements that nuclear weapons are too expensive, that we need to save money by not doing these various modernizations. And Sam, who is in a classroom every day, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts as we wrap things up. I know we're getting towards the end. And what are the students in your classrooms? think they probably think nuclear weapons are extremely expensive, super dangerous, and just, you know, just, you know, uh, nasty, nasty things. And, and they don't understand that the, that they, the world and the peace that they enjoy is brought to you by Minuteman three or whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, what say you on that, Sam? Yeah. In general, most uh, most of my students have uh, initially only a smallest of clues. I mean, they've all read and heard the United States spends so much on defense that more than everybody else combined sort of things. Uh, and they don't realize that, yes, and we're still talking about, what, 4% of the entire budget? Right. Uh you know, so it, it's in that economic scheme of things, it's not a large amount of money that we are spending to secure ourselves directly when we're thinking about the military means that we employ to secure ourselves. And when it comes to nuclear weapons, eh, there are those who say, I wish we could do away with all of them. And I'm like, well, yeah, and, you know, if we could put genies back in the bottle, life would be good. Um, most of them 
would probably fit into initially before they think about this in too much detail a minimalist school of thought you know a minimal deterrent force that you know because they they have that potential usefulness they make deterrence for us yeah well good well said everybody unfortunately you know the clock is our our biggest enemy is the clock and we always run out of time on this. And so we have done that again today. We didn't get around to talking about some pretty interesting news that came out of the mouth of South Korea's president. So we will do that. We'll talk about that next week. And I want to thank Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky. Wait, 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 wait. Before we go, I misspoke. 1989 when we last made pits. I don't want our followers to come back and yell at me about that. Okay. <laughs> So, no emails, please. Yeah, not the seventies. That was when, uh, you know, that was when Jim bell bottoms. Yeah, that was how when, old are you? Yeah, Jim remembers <laughs> the early nineteen seventies well. So, uh, <laughs> but we want to thank you for listening to the show. Encourage you to come back next week, and don't forget we also have nuclear knowledge for your short, brief understanding of a new nuclear topic each week. And so thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on The Nuclear View.